0: You're listening to episode 15 of season 13 for day 97 of 2019. Hi everyone, my name's Glatu. this is the New World Order. We have a lot to get through, as always. So let's get started. First off, um, I'm going to take a little bit of re- reader feedback, or be- er, not reader feedback, uh, listener feedback, that's you, and I'm going to read email from you. Possibly not you personally, but someone very much like you and the first one is going to start out with ronald who was talking about the tar command previously said that he tried it again tried some tar gz and i think bz tests and just didn't get quite the same results and was a little bit disappointed i'm going to i'm going to have to say that my tests you know this is not a coordinated effort this is not scientific at all but my my tests have actually been pretty good not necessarily fantastic in all cases but they have been really positive. And the theory here was that BZ2 and GZ were able to compress greater amounts than ZIP because of their ability to treat the entirety of a TAR archive as one big file. And so it could sort of toss out more than you can if you're trying to compress individual files that have already been compressed. So if there's any intersection of data, then you can compress that within the TAR archive. So I don't know, I mean, I would be interested to hear from other people about random tests of this sort of thing. I tried it on, again, um, JPEGs and PNGs, and I think that's primarily what I was... just because that's what I happened to be compressing in the couple of moments that I, would, I have thought, oh, I should, I should try, I should compare it with this and that. So that's that's what I've been testing is just whenever I'm compressing something as a bzip2, I try to also compress it as a zip and then I compare the sizes. So far, I've not had any unpleasant surprises. Next up is from Ingarard, in, in no, sorry, Ingrand, Ingerand de Rochefer. Um and he says that I started listening to your episode on Git Opt in the car. And blah blah blah. Coming home, I had to sit down, take a look, because as far, uh, because so far, I always refrained from using git opts. Note at the note the s at the end, because it lacks support for long options. I was surprised to find that there is also a git opt command without the s, which does support long options. And I started comparing the two versions. While searching, I came across statements actively discouraging the use of git opt without the s and he cites a stack exchange flame war on the subject. Uh, and I say flame war because that if you look at the page, and I'll try to remember to paste this link into the show notes, you'll see what I mean. And he says, I looked at my own scripts again and compared the self-written argument parsing code to code that results from the use of either git opt and git opts. To tell you the truth, I didn't find that much... Uh, I didn't find uh his you know he's saying i didn't find my scripts much longer or clumsier i think i'll stick with manual parsing but would be interested in hearing your thoughts yeah that's a um, an interesting that's a really good point um i think that i was attracted to get opt well number 1 because it was in line to be covered for the show so i had to talk about it but the the second reason i think i was attracted to it was because of a hope that it would treat arguments more, w- with greater sanity. That is to say, you could uh, maybe play it a little bit faster and looser with spaces in file names and that sort of thing. And what I have found, I don't know exactly why I thought that, but I, what I have found whilst looking at my own scripts, thinking maybe I should check, should port these over to Git Opt. And what I've found is that yeah. Um, you you really just have to be ever vigilant in how when you are writing a script, ever vigilant in how you treat options, how you grab them from the the command, the the input line, and and start parsing them. Because if you do it wrong, then everything falls apart. You have to encapsulate all of those all of those arguments, all of the things that you get in. You have to encapsulate them very carefully with quotes and curly braces and everything you can do to capture it as exact as, exact as it was input for you. And GitOpt doesn't actually have any special magic for that. And so I think the, the one of the advantages that I felt like I was going to get from GitOpt, I've seen that it, it's actually... It's avoidable if you just really are very careful about how you treat input. Now, I have tried to discuss the Stack Overflow uh, thread in a couple of different takes, and I've hated each one of them. So it's a big topic, I think, and it's a a bigger topic than I want to afford right now. So I'm just going to say that the Stack Overflow thread that Ingrand links me to is quite interesting. You should go read it. It's not necessarily enlightening. It might not teach you anything but it will at least demonstrate that there are two really really strong sides of a I guess an important debate and that is portability how far do we want to go for portability how far can we afford to go for portability and whose burden is it to 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 make portability possible i think there's a there's a conversation to be had there as well so anyway that's that's my response i guess i, I think to summarize it i was saying I probably won't use git opt anytime soon myself either, unless there's a really good reason for it, and uh, and really the primary reason I I was thinking I would use it was for better treatment of arguments, and it turns out that I think it just is up to the script writer to handle them carefully when they get them from the input line in the first place. And last but not least, and actually this isn't last, but this is the last I'm going to take today, is from zenfloater two. He says, I am a former human being, uh, converted into a squirrel in the 1960s, placed in a magical forest by aliens from another planet. Very cool, thanks for letting me know. Uh, He goes on to say that he has a following opinion about the show's audio. Uh, The audio is just fine, but I preferred the old uh, audio that I had like in season 2 and 3 over to what I have now, and that is, as he says, um, the audio which made us believe you were doing the entire show over your mom's 1955 rotary portable Bedroom phone, colored yellow, that kind of. In a ditch, I'm on a narrower voice bandwidth telephone, kind of audio. Back then, you even played your music from the show over your mom's 1955 portable yellow phone, and it all sounded very retro and very cool. It sounded like AM radio over the internet. Cool. Anyway, your audio's fine, I suppose. So there you go. That's um, that's the other that's the other side of the story, which is true. I mean, this is all very true. Uh, I used to have really, really bad audio, and, and I loved it, and I still love it, and I, I would probably... I wouldn't mind having audio like that, to be honest, but at this point, it is easier for me to record into a headset attached to my computer than it is for me to uh, record to my N8 one, my yeah N800, which I still have two of now. Ken Fallon sent me his famous N800 Nokia... Device And they, they both still work. I still use them sometimes, and I just don't use them to podcast on because, it, like I say, it's just easier. The workflow is smoother for me to record into a headset to my computer, and then when I make a mistake, I can quickly, very quickly, erase it in Audacity and then keep going. That's, that's the that's the appeal, to be honest. Otherwise, I record, 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 make mistakes, make mistakes, mistake, then I have to import it into my computer and then listen to the whole thing over to find all the mistakes and so on. It just, it really slows things down, so. And I'm not that into degrading audio. I'm not gonna record it at, like, whatever, whatever quality I'm recording in right now and then crush it down to 1,600 or 8,000, which I did, actually. I used to do that but I'm not I'm not that dedicated to sort of the aesthetic to to bother. So th- this is what you hear this is this is it. That's that's you know, we're not going we're not going to go crazy here. This is just a, a a a podcast that I do for fun and uh we'll just we'll be happy with with audio that does not hurt our ears even if it doesn't necessarily please us on an artistic level. Okay. Next up is util linux yes we're still in util linux believe it or not from the slackware package set package set what are we in now a still correct i think that's yep 14.2 slackware slash a and in the in the package set a of of the slackware install there is right near the bottom, tantalizingly near the bottom of the page i mean you just you think oh cool we're almost done and then you look at the util linux package and you realize we're nowhere near done. So Utilinux has a bunch of little applications inside of it that we use every day possibly, uh, or that get used for us every day. And um and we're we're talking about each and every one. Now we did get through all of the unless I'm mistaken, we got through all of the bin utilities, everything in the bin directory. That was dMessage, find mount, get opt host name, kill, list block, more mount, mount point, set term, umount, and wdctl. So now we're in the sbin folder, and the first one in sbin is adjtimex, that's a-d-j-t-i-m-e-x, and that is to display or set the kernel time variable. This program gives you raw access to the kernel time variables. Anyone may print out the time variables, but only the superuser may change them. So this is just straight from the man page, and it's actually quite well written, so I'm just going to keep going. Your computer has two clocks. There's the hardware clock that runs all the time, and the system clock that runs only while the computer is on. Normally, hwclock-hctosys should be run at startup to initialize the system clock. The system clock has much better precision, approximately one USEC, but the hardware clock probably has better long-term stability. So this man page goes on to explain a little bit that there are three, technically three ways, that you could maintain the time, the, the clock of your system. One is the NTPD daemon, network time protocol. The other is HW clock and then the the final sort of last draw i think is adj timex i think most people would would just i think we all use ntpd whether you know it or not and i don't want to go into ntpd right now because that's surely something that we'll go over later when we get to ntpd but that's the the typical one because we're all online now why wouldn't you use ntpd But another one is hwclock, which, again, we won't get into right now because we'll get into it when we get into it. And so then the the final one that they mention is adjtimex, and this is a kernel time setting. You can see this setting by using the dash dash print option to the command. Now, mine is located in sbin. My path does not include sbin, so I have to type in slash sbin slash adj timex, and then dash dash print. And I get a bunch of information back, and I'm just gonna kinda zero in on the the one I more or less know, which is the raw time. And that gives me a pretty long value. It's 1554176460s. So those are the seconds, obviously, and then there's a a little bonus value here, 171431us, and those are—that's a fraction of a second, which uh, in this case is, is all the way down to 171431. So if I if I grab this whole number from 1554176460.171431 dot one seven one four three one and I put it into a command such as date dash dash date equals quote and then the at symbol and then the number. So I'll just middle click to get that number in there, and then close single quote. Or it doesn't have to be a single quote, but whatever. Um, then I hit return and it tells me it's Tuesday, April 2nd, 164100 NZDT uh, 2019. So, in other words, the value that I got from the kernel just now from ADJ Timex is the epoch time, the the, the seconds since the beginning of the Unix epoch. And when I translated it with the date command, it confirmed that that many seconds from the Unix epoch resolves to pretty much right now. Uh, I can confirm that it is, in fact, the 92nd day of the year, 2019, at around 1635 or whatever I said the time the time resolved to, 1644. So so great, that works. Uh, my clock is correct, I guess. Now, let's go back to man-adj-timex. You wouldn't want to use this probably... For, for real, I mean, why would you? This would be a, an an arduous way to set your time. You'd have to become root or use sudo every time you turn your computer on, and then adjust the computer by some value that that who knows what kind of value that is. So obviously, network protocol, network time protocol is the the way to go. But it is it is this is a this is a way to do it, and there are some other command or some other options here that you could that you can. Play around with, I guess, if you wanted to. I would be careful playing around too much with this. Uh, if you if you screw up too much, if you screw with time too much in in your computer, then the computer starts to make logical or, or to catch logical logic problems, such as you're asking me to commit to get a file that was created in the future. Uh, I can't do that. That sort of thing. So you don't really want to mess around too greatly with with the the system clock. I would I would say that that wouldn't be the greatest idea. But there is a fun little option here that you should try because it's it's just it's good, clean fun, really. So as a slash sbin slash adj timex dash dash watch. It's the word watch, or just dash w if you like short short options. But if you hit return after that, then it says, please press enter when you know the time of day. And so you can grab a clock that you truly, truly trust, and watch the seconds tick by. And when you feel like you've got the, the correct time, like the most correct time, then you hit enter, and it tells you, okay, system time when, when you pressed enter was 164700 what was the time according to your reference in NZDT? Well, obviously it was exactly, I mean, that's why I hit Enter. So I'm going to put in 164700, because that was exactly the the correct time. And then hit Return. And it says that um, the reference time is that, My make time returns the time of that, Reference time, system time... Sh- it shows the difference of 0.980 seconds. Uh, how big could the error be in this in seconds? Uh, that's almost a full second, really. So I'm gonna put 1. And it won't let me reset anything because I'm not pseudo. Uh, I, I'm not root or anything. So, But that's, that's a fun one to try because it feels like a game. Even though it's not. But... Really, obviously ADJ Timex is not really the it's a. F- I I think that they probably list it in the as the last method of maintaining your clock because it would be it would be a last resort. Alright, next up is Ageti or getty, or Ageti. And a is an alternative Linux getty, and a getty is um, is what it's called the the tty port so when you hit for instance alt control some f key on on a lot of systems f1 is where your graphical display lives alt control f1 is where your graphics are on older systems or traditional systems it's f7 i don't know why it was ever f7 maybe just because traditionally there were six TTY sessions or screens available for you but just by default so then when they came out with the graphics they figured, well, let's put it on the next one, which would be seven. Maybe to them that made sense. I would think that they would still made more sense to move that to the to the first because then the the exception is at the beginning and the normal things can go on forever. But that would have probably broken a lot of expectations, so... Maybe they were reticent to do that. Anyway, what that is, when you boot a computer without a graphical interface, what you're seeing in the end is a TTY session. We sometimes call it a a text console or just a console. Sometimes you might even call it a terminal, although not so much because terminals usually imply that there's some kind of I mean, in modern times, it's it's there's an emulation happening. It's a terminal emulator, the the console, the the tty session that you that you see when you hit alt control f1 or f2 or f3 or, or whatever. I usually tell people to hit f uh, control alt control alt f3 because that way, it's kind of a safe one. It's so like it's right in the middle. There's probably there's very little chance that your graphical session is running on f3 or the the screen that F3 takes you to so those are those are tty's and that that stands for teletype is is where that came from because in the old days of computing the output was sent to some thing that could print and so when they came out with these monitors that could print output they figured the the equivalent I guess or or maybe the the thing that that just naturally was getting the signal sent to slash dev slash tty was now a monitor was now a screen and so it became that became the output device it was just the tty device and in fact you can see that if you if you do a, a ls slash dev slash TT and then hit tab a couple of times uh, mine actually says, "Would you like to see 101 possibilities?" Sure, why not? And then there's tty session zero, one, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, and th- so on. the The point is that the 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 way that that the reason that you get a login prompt when you turn on your computer and you don't have a graphical interface installed, the reason that you see anything at all, like text, a text prompt at all for you to log in, is because a tty program is running. And in true open source and Linux fashion, there are a couple of different ones available. Now we've already actually talked about one called getty-ps, you may or may not remember that from, it was still in the a package series, cause that's what we've been in since I've started this, but it was way back obviously in the g section, so you may not remember it, but we did talk about that. Um, and if I do a PS AU ps space au return, I can verify that I do indeed have seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven instances of sbin agetty running. Um, I don't, so I, I'm I'm assuming that I'm actually not running anything called getty ps, or I think the other one was UU Getty. Yeah, I'm not getting anything back from a pgrep on those. So anyway, looks like I'm running agetty. Now there are others though. There are yet other Geties out there, and I've I've run in Getty, I've run Getty, I've run a Getty apparently. So there you go. Those are that's what the Gettys do, and it's um, kind of fun to hack around on the Getty systems because they they're there, and you never really think of them as a program until you realize, oh my gosh, they are a program, and they're being launched by something. What are they being launched by? well a lot of that early stuff when you first boot your computer it's being launched by your init daemon right the thing that initializes all of the things that happen on your computer before before you can step in and tell it what to do so if on slackware this is pretty easy to do it might be less less obvious on a systemd uh computer because you'll you'll kind of it'll be different it won't be all in one place but I mean you can poke around on there too and you'll you'll find the target that that governs the getty system but for this I'm just going to do or maybe I don't know maybe is getty rolled into systemd now is that part of systemd I honestly don't know I haven't looked at systemd carefully enough lately um so on on a traditional system you you can go to init tab and and look at what happens when when the computer initializes when it inits so I'm just going to open it up in Emacs here, init tab. So here I've got the default run level, It's good. I've got system, sysinit, that's RC stuff. Here's a shutdown, power fail, okay. Ah, here we go. There are the standard, these are the standard console login getty's in multi-user mode, and there are uh, six of them, C1, 12345 respawn Espin, a getty no clear 38400 tty1 linux and it goes on like that down to tty6. I don't know how far into init tab I should go it probably doesn't hurt to talk a little bit about it I'm sure it'll come up later as well but it's just kind of it's worth mentioning that that the syntax here is that we've we've got these these tty's and they are they're starting in in all of the in all of the modes available, one, two, three, four, five, that would make sense for them to start. So it wouldn't make sense for a TTY to start on a reboot. It wouldn't make sense for a TTY to start on a halt signal. So that's zero and six on on, on Slackware. So that's that's how it's configured. And then there's this other there's this other thing called respawn. And that means that if it if it quits, if it fails for some reason the computer knows the init system knows to respawn that thing, and that's a that's an important part of this because you wouldn't want to have something crash and then and then have no way to get it back now Getty can be a little bit it can be configured in in some way, which which uh gives you some options that that maybe Maybe you shouldn't use, maybe you should use. It kind of all depends. But believe it or not, I've had the occasion to to use... I think it was a Getty, maybe, something like it anyway, uh, such that there was an automatic login. And if you do a man of a Getty, you'll see that the dash dash auto login, or just dash A if you're into short options, will, will allow you to define a username for someone to automatically log into a computer without a password. Like, no kidding. It just, it, it takes it takes a username and when you turn on your computer your computer is up and running. It is you're logged in. You don't have to type in anything. Seems crazy, right? Well, I mean, this is of course separate than your GUI login, so keep that in mind. And the time that I've used this little trick was on a Raspberry Pi. Because I needed the Pi to serve as more or less as a kiosk, I was going to. I, I plugged it in, and I needed it to, to to boot up, and I needed services to start, and I needed it to accept key presses from a, an external device, and those key presses were not expected to be the login information. In other words, there was no screen attached to this Pi, so there was this external device that you were going to start pressing. Buttons on, and you you would expect the Pi to respond to those. You wouldn't expect it to assume that you are logging into to the computer. The computer should have already started. The little program that was written should have already started. And indeed, that was the expectation. That was the requirement. And the answer was to go into the. It was a. It was Fedora on a Pi. So it w- I went into System D, wrote a target, I think, or a service, or something or another. And configured it such that when when a Getty started, it was started with the dash dash auto login option with I think it was root or something crazy like that, and I felt ridiculous doing it. I just thought it was absolutely the craziest thing I'd ever done because I just thought everything I've ever heard is telling me that I should not be doing this. But I mean, it was an appliance. It was it was a kiosk display model thing that that was running was running a, a, a you know, a work of uh, something, a kiosk that people would interact with, and and that was it. It wasn't wasn't online. It wasn't there. There was no monitor. It was it was part of a larger system, and it needed to act like an embedded system. Is basically what it turned into. There's also a chroot option. It's dash dash chroot, so that you can have it change directory to a specific place upon login. There's a lot of option really for for login, the the login pro- process, in fact. And now, the login process is governed by, at least by default, according to this man page, is slash bin slash login. So that's yet another application. That's a different program entirely. So a lot of the options within a Getty rely, or expect, rather, a a login program. And so there is actually, somewhere in here, there's a thing where you can override what login program it, it calls to, or, you know, it utilizes... I, I can't find it. Oh, there it is right here. No, that's not it, actually. dash dash login, dash dash skip login. That's not the one, though. Ah, dash dash login dash program. Invoke the specified login program instead of slash bin slash login. So, um, and, and there are lots of different reasons you might be hacking around with your A-Git-y, your getty configuration. You may have some kind of weird non-standard uh login process like the one that they give here in the man page one that asks for a dial-up password or that uses a different password file perhaps or again as i did maybe you're using a getty to to serve as just a a thing to get you into the computer and then and and let some kind of system daemon launch and con- you know be controlled by an external device who knows that's why you would be messing around with a Getty, I think, unless you had reason, again, to change out Getty's entirely. Maybe you don't want a Getty to be the thing that gets started when you start your computer. And now you know, at least on Slackware, where you can change that, which is the init tab. And on any other system, uh, you'll have to just find out where your, your init system is being configured or is being controlled, and then change things there. Next on the list is block discard or blk discard. It is um, really simply; it's a program to erase or, or to to clear a drive. So it, it it I'll go to the man page. It says it pretty succinctly. Block discard Discard sectors on a device. So it's used to discard device sectors. This is useful for solid state drives, uh, SSDs, and thinly provisioned storage. Unlike fs-trim, this command is used directly on the block device. So the way that you invoke this and I'm not going to do it is you point it at a device, a block device, and tell it to block discard and by default it discards all blocks on the device and then you can use options to to modify that default behavior. But in other words, and it says this in the man page in big bold letters, warning, all data in the discarded region on the device will be lost. That means it it erases the data. And I think that it exists, and I'm a little bit fuzzy on the specifics here, I think it exists because this is a quicker and, I guess, cleaner way to, to just zero out a drive than a lot of the other options. Now, I haven't actually used it. I've never really needed to to take advantage of this, so I, I don't have any data on it whatsoever. All I know is what I've read online and what the man page tells me. And it seems that some of the other sort of options are well, using dd. For instance, dd, for, if equals dev zero, of to your device, your block device. You're overwriting it with a bunch of zeros. Uh, you could do... HD PARM, there's a, um, we, we've already covered that I think, but there's an option in there to, to clear out a device, or to, to clear out a disk, uh, you could, you know, people say, oh well you could just install something over the device, and people other people say, well that's not good enough because you're not really clearing out the blocks, and so on once you start going down the path of how do i erase data you get into into serious paranoia very very quickly because there are just so many hacks apparently on getting de- on get- getting data back from a hard drive so it's it's a lot of fun to to experiment with all the different ways you can lose data on purpose which of course never works to your advantage it seems when you lose data on accident but that's block device or or rather no that's not block device that's block discard Another one is block ID, and this is, uh, again, in sbin, so I have to use it uh, with sbin prefixing the command, but it returns the block ID of devices that are attached to your system. So I just executed it as a normal user, and I've just executed it as a root user. Same information comes back and the information is that it provides you the UUID and the part UUID of partitions of a drive. So here's dev sda one and it tells me that the UUID is A75900C4-2D, and so on. And then the type is swap, and the part UUID is 4E6B, and so on. So this is important because devices... New newer systems uh, that, that read, that, that interact with, with drives very frequently interact with their unique identifier. In fact, if I do, uh, I'm going to go into my root user here, my root tab here, and do an, a cat on etsy fs tab, and I'm going to bet incorrectly that at least one of my entries is based on the UUID of the device. Uh, and no, apparently not, not on this computer, not on this system. That's interesting. I could have sworn that was true, but anyway, um, a lot of times you'll see that in in your FS tab. That, that 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 in order to identify a device, or in in order to to detect that a device has been mounted, or or how it should be mounted rather, it 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 specifies it by the UUID. It's kind of ugly. It's 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 unwieldy but it is independent of other information. So, for instance, if, if a drive gets mounted on SDA today, but ends up on SDB tomorrow, then that UUID is going to be the same no matter what. And that's really, really useful. And in fact, I, I leveraged this, not that program, but the, the concept of a UUID, with my attach-up program. When you install, or when you when you invoke attach up to define a drive to back up. It identifies it by its UUID. There's a Python thing that looks at the UUID for you and, and returns it. Taps into disks, I think. And speaking of disks and block devices and that sort of thing, the next one is BlockDev. And this is actually a really handy little application to know about. And it's one of those that I don't feel like it gets mentioned a whole lot. But if we do SBIN BlockDev... I guess let's do dash dash help. Oh, and I should mention that it is actually block dev. So unlike blkid and blkdiscard and all those other things, this one spells out block. That's not confusing at all. Block dev. B-L-O-C-K dev dash dash help. Shows you a bunch of options which aren't, aren't terribly self-explanatory at first, but if you look at their descriptions, you kind of get a feel for it. So there's get size in 512 byte sectors. Set read only. Set read write. Set... Uh, read only, get discard zeros support status, get logical block sector size, and so on and so on. So in other words, this is a um, well. Let's see what it calls itself. So that because usually the man page one-liners are pretty, pretty good. Block dev call block device io controls from the command line, and as anticipated, that's yeah. That that's pretty good. I like that. So for instance, we could say, we could do a um, block dev dash dash get sz for get size of slash dev slash sda and there it returns five eight six zero five three three one six eight you do the math uh, we could do for instance a get physical size physical block sector size that's get pbsz is the argument for that one. I'll just middle click here on again slash dev slash sda. It's forty ninety-six, and that is handy to know because now I know the block size of this of this drive. There's another one that I saw somewhere online. It was looking at the read-ahead capabilities. I think it was git ra. Yeah, that would make sense actually, read-ahead. So or here's um so get git file system read ahead. So f R A slash dev slash S D A. That's 256 And I wonder if there is just a git raw. Yeah, there is, but it's the same value, 256 So, yeah, you can get all kinds of information about your hard drive, like a physical device, this way. And it's kind of fascinating to see. Whether or not I'm actually going to do anything with it is a whole different story, because, frankly, I don't know enough about performance and hard drive alignment and things like that to feel like I should go mucking around with settings. There are options in here, though, where you can set certain things about a drive with with block dev. I have not tried that, probably won't anytime soon, not until I have a spare computer, about which I really truly just don't care that much. So, next up is cfdisk. I feel like cfdisk is probably fairly well known. I could be wrong, but I feel like it's probably fairly well-known. It's it's a disk formatting application. Now, you may know fdisk. You may have heard of F, fdisk more than cfdisk. But cfdisk, I, I certainly know quite well because it is one of the two options... Two options? Yeah, I think one of the two options. Well, three now. But it's one of those options in the Slackware installer that that you are given when you are told, okay, now go get your hard drive ready for a Slackware install by creating partitions and so on. Now, when I first started with Linux, and I had no clue what I was doing, I had I I, I knew in principle what a partition was, vaguely, but I, I really didn't understand how it was how it was done or defined what a block size was, what a sector was, anything like that. So it was very very new to me and the last thing that i wanted to do was try to figure out fdisk so i used cfdisk and it was a lot easier because cfdisk is kind of the i guess you could call it the nano of disk partitioners if you've ever if you've never looked at it you you should you should take a look at it you should try it the, i i guess you probably have it on your system actually because you almost certainly have uutil linux on your system so cfdisk it opens up now actually this is um I think I'm getting. I want to say I'm getting CG Disk. I could be wrong, but that looks like CG Disk to me. Nope, that was CF Disk. Okay, interesting. I guess it's gotten prettier over the years. CF Disk is is an interactive interface, which in real life I, I don't tend to use it quite as much as I used to. I don't feel, although having said that, actually I kind of do. Like during a Slackware install, I I will not bother with fdisk. I just won't. It just doesn't make any sense to me to do it that way. Whereas CG disk or CF disk, it it's right there. Everything's you see the drive, you see the partitions you're making. It's it, I don't know. For me, it it seems very comfortable. Of course, that might be also because it's semi nostalgic. It is so familiar to me that to me a Slackware install involves CF disk. But in real life, I generally use parted on the on the in the terminal not g parted just parted i think i feel like that's actually the command to use because you don't have to go into any kind of interactive mode bizarrely my complaint about fdisk is that it's an interactive mode typically and parted while you can do interactive parted you can also just type out the the command and parted and point it at a disk and it does its thing so anyway in cf disk it opens up a screen it takes over your terminal you have entries for your, your well, you, so you're looking at one drive, right? So one screen is one drive. And then you can make partitions, and you can, there's a little menu at the bottom, and you just kind of arrow through them. You can delete a partition, you can quit, you can set the type of the partition, you can get help, you can sort the partitions that you're looking at, and then you can write the specific data that you have just set. You, you know, the, the choices that you have made, you can, you can write to the, the device to make them permanent. And that's a CF disk. Is there anything else to say about CF disk? I don't, I don't feel like there is. It's pretty straightforward. It's a curses-based program for partitioning any block device. The default device is dev uh, is slash dev slash sda. And um, yeah, it's it's pretty self-explanatory. It is it it very much is the 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 nano of disk partitioning. And I think sometimes that's exactly what you want. Alright, I think that's that's probably as far as we should go right now i mean there's there's still a ton there's like there's a screen full of um of things still left in the s bin folder. not a screen full sorry there's half a screen of things left in the s bin folder and then there's a couple of different screens. nope, there they are, okay, so it's just one screen of user bin is there a user sbin? that's going to be the the real question um couple in user sbin. not a whole lot so yeah we've got we've got quite a ways to go still through Linux. but i think this is a really good low level stuff to to learn about actually a lot of these are are those weird little programs i mean they they are in in a lot of ways they're they're kind of very much the, those classic Unix programs, although they're not, interestingly, super classic. Like, a lot of these are actually kind of new and exciting to me. The things that I, I I didn't know existed, Udisk types of things, like really useful things where you can probe probe different uh, d- devices and find information about these things. D- had no idea they existed, maybe, or I don't use them every day. And, and they're great to know about because they are so specific that you can really... Th- imagine a time in the future where you'll think, oh, I need a thing to find out the, the sector size of this drive. Never needed to know that in my life before, but today I need to know it. And didn't Klaatu once say that there was something that did that? And then you'll probably remember that it's in util Linux, and you'll just do a less of a var log packages util Linux and find out where it is or what it is and how to use it. So there you go. That's what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and uh, I will talk to you next time. Of course, you can email me at clatu at member.fsf.org. That's clatu@member.fsf, at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, GNU World Order.info and SlackerMedia.info. I will see you next time.